Well, our first scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, uh, often, or in the summer at least, in, the, in ordinary time, we have these, these scripture reading opposite to whatever we're preaching on. Now, you will notice today we're preaching out of the book of Acts. That's a guest preacher coming later. I'll explain more about that. We're usually preaching out of the Psalms, hence we've been reading in Romans. We decided just to keep it going for this week. It's from Romans chapter 3. Rachel's going to come and read it for us. Rachel. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Uh, you may have heard the name of an artist named Vincent van Gogh, um, and some of you might be familiar with his paintings. He was a, a Dutch painter, um, and he was actually the son of a godly pastor uh, who preached the word of God, and van Gogh uh, himself considered becoming a pastor. Uh, in fact, for a while, he uh, went to Charles Haddon Spurgeon's church in London and got so far in his faith that he would go down to East London in the evenings and share the gospel with the poor. But it wasn't long until he went to uh, consider uh, his studies in, uh, in, in theology, actually, in Antwerp. 
And he fell under the influence of people who didn't actually love the word of God and the things of God. And he led him astray. And from there, Van Gogh began to lose his trust in God and turned away to emptiness and to a life of sensuality. And you'd expect a, an artist of such an influence to uh, maybe depict this change, this radical change of direction in one of his paintings. And that's exactly what he does. There is a painting, you may look it up later, called Still Life with an Open Bible. And if you look closely, you'll find the Bible open to the pages of Isaiah 53. And in the picture, in the painting, there is but this, this little candle. And there's smoke coming out of it. And it's all, it's all but gone out. And there's a sensual book laid there on the table beside the Bible called La Joie de Vivre. It was a book that was banned at the time because of its sensuality. And it's as though, it's as though Van Gogh is making the claim that for him, the light has all but gone out of the Bible. And now the light for him, the joy of life, has been replaced by immorality instead of the things of God. In our passage this morning from Acts 8, the same passage is open to another empty man from Isaiah 53. And God brings a willing and ready servant named Philip alongside this Ethiopian traveler. And things are not the same by the end of the story. In fact, um, he plays a crucial part in God's appointment. Philip, this man, this servant, this ready servant, plays a crucial part in God's appointment with the Ethiopian that day. And the story doesn't end the same. At the very end in verse 39, it says the Ethiopian went home. What? He went home rejoicing. Perhaps this morning, you can identify more with the Ethiopian who almost went away empty that day. And you're tempted, kind of like Van Gogh, to slide into a life of futility, of pointlessness, of emptiness, and even of immorality. Or perhaps like Philip, you are longing to be, to grow into a willing and ready servant of Christ Jesus. And I think the direction I want to point us this morning, regardless of which camp you're in, is the gospel. You see, the gospel, the story shows us, brings joy to converted sinners, but it also brings great joy and fruitfulness to ready and willing servants. It's the same place. And not only that, but it also, in God's amazing work and plan, brings transformation to faraway places. Because that African was on a journey home, and things were not to stay the same there in his land. This morning, I want to show us three things on how this spirit brings this man home. One, the emptiness of a sinner. Two, the willingness of a Christian. And three, the joyfulness of the gospel. So in verse 27, we meet the eunuch. When Philip gets to that desert road connecting Jerusalem and Gaza, he doesn't know who he's about to meet. But uh, Luke the evangelist tells us in verse 27, four things as he gives us an introduction to this man. You might want to note them. First, he is Ethiopian. He's Ethiopian. We think of Ethiopia today as the nation in the Horn of Africa, but the Greek term actually applied to all of Africa at that time south of Egypt. He was probably from today's Sudan. Very likely, he was an, a black man. And he came a long way to Jerusalem. It would have taken about four months for him to come from his homeland to go to Jerusalem. It's a long journey. It's no small commitment for this man. He must have known something of God's great promises in Scripture to bring his part of the world, his people, to God. 
Promises like Psalm 68, verse 31, nobles shall come from Egypt. And listen, Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. That's what his land was known as, Cush. One day foreigners from the kingdom of Cush would be included in the people of God. That they too would be among those who know me, it says in Psalm 87. Those whom God himself registers in his book of life. God has a heart for this people, Luke wants to tell us. Yes, he tells us the story of the gospel ex expansion. The second thing about this man is he's important. He's important. The text says that he was a court official of Candace, Candace queen of the, uh, of the Ethiopians, uh, who was in charge of all her treasure. He, he would be what uh, the Brits call the Chancellor of the Exchequer, or what we call Minister of, the fi of Finance. He is an important guy. He was evidently educated, intelligent. We find him reading scripture in Greek, in all likelihood, in the next few verses. And um, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a person of influence. Third, he is a eunuch. The eunuch is a eunuch. He was a castrated man. He was a sexually altered man. The text highlights that fact five times for us. Doesn't call him the Ethiopian, except once. Our most reliable commentators argue that he really was castrated. Clearly, this man's identity was tied to that status. He would have been unable to have family. In ancient times, high-ranking aristocratic officials would be eunuched in order to ensure that they were safe in court, that they could be trustworthy in the face of temptation, especially in the entourage of royalty's possessions and harem. And whether it was Jews or Romans, this was not a noble state. In fact, they were considered bad luck. It is said among Roman chroniclers that if you met a uh, castrated man, a eunuch, in the morning, retrace your steps and go back home. You're not going to have a good day. So the superstitions, uh, superstitions went. In the eyes of prejudiced people, they were even less than women and slaves. And even high aristocratic people suffered stigma for this. The Israelite law was even more strict, making no distinction for why a person was eunuch. And so I want you to think about, uh, about the fact with me uh, that, that this man came to Jerusalem to seek the living God, to find out about God, whom he had heard about, but he still was going home as an outsider. He could not be admitted, though he was a God-feeder, into the people of God because of his eunuch status. And that's, it's the third point about his being a eunuch is also related to the fourth important point. Luke tells us he's a God-fearer. The text says he is a worshiper of the true God. He had come maybe to some kind of religious conference, maybe combined with a diplomatic visit. But he was an earnest seeker of the God of Israel. He would have arrived to, got, to get to know this God and to perhaps wanting to belong to his people and been turned away at the temple as a man who must be excluded from the blessing of belonging to the people of God. A eunuch could not be circumcised, could not receive the sign of belonging to the people of God. He would have showed up at the temple, maybe tried to enter into its inner courts, and he would have been told, Mr. Eunuch, we're sorry, regardless of your status, you may not come into these courts. You will remain a God-fearer. We appreciate your interests, but you cannot be part of the people of God. I wonder what he went through on the way home that day. I wonder what was going through his mind, what the Spirit was saying to this man who had gone as close as he could possibly be to the living God, 
and to being part of the living God, and yet, there he was, almost gone home, empty. I find it fascinating that of all the tens of thousands of Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans that needed Christ, the Lord sovereignly sets his favor on this man and sends an angel to Philip so he can go and meet the Ethiopian. God had an appointment with the Ethiopian. He would not go home empty. Meet with me, Philip. So second, the willingness of a Christian. Meet Philip, a willing Christian, whom God uses as an instrument in this unfolding appointment with the Ethiopian. I'm sure God could have had, uh, made himself known to the Ethiopian in some other way, perhaps a dream or some other extraordinary way, but he chose this servant, Philip. A servant who was obedient and available to the Spirit's prompting. I just want to note that this is not the Philip who is one of the twelve of Jesus' disciples. This Philip is one we are introduced to in Acts 6 as one of the seven who were deacons, servants, appointed to what? To serve tables. But were characterized, though this ministry was not maybe on the surface of it very noble, they were characterized by being men who were filled with the Spirit. In fact, we find this Philip earlier in Acts 8 in the middle of an urban, exciting revival in Samaria. A place where there's dramatic, wonderful, exciting, stunning things happen, happening. And great conversion. A lot more exciting than a desert place. <laughs> and then in verse 26, the Spirit tells Philip, to go where? An angel of the Lord, sorry, an angel of the Lord, not the Spirit, excuse me. An angel of the Lord, in verse 26, said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Four things I want us to learn from Philip. First, he yields to the Spirit's, sorry, to the Lord's guidance. He yields to the Lord's guidance. I don't know about you, but I'm not sure how I would feel about being taken out of an exciting, great awakening in Samaria and being instructed by an angel to go to an old, unused, middle of the nowhere, middle of nowhere desert road. Not sure I'd be very excited. In fact, some commentators say about this command, they call it an absurd command. They go so far as to call it an absurd command. Who would want to obey this command? Plucked from the heart of an exciting revival to go on a lonely assignment. And yet, we don't hear Philip's argument. It's like, yeah, good to go, Lord. And the Lord sovereignly moves him out of Samaria, out of the limelight, into the obscurity of personal evangelism where no one else is watching, there's no crowds, into that desert place. One commentator rightly says of Philip, he says, Philip appears to us a Christ-surrendered, spirit-enabled, skillful, and effective servant of the Lord. This guy's ready to be used. And so... Um, I just want you to imagine the scene there. It's, uh, it's, it's the Middle East, it's, it's, it's noonday, it's hot. It's really hot. And, and, and the Ethiopian is in a chariot, and he's reading. And the Spirit tells, uh, prompts Philip, tells him to go over and join the chariot in verse 28. But I just want you to picture the scene. Um, he must have had to jog beside him. This chariot is moving. It's, and, and so Philip is, is, is kind of hastening and, and running alongside and maybe jogging to get beside him and begins the conversation. 
Texts during that time um, would have been all lumped together, so it must have been going slow enough that he would be able to read, because otherwise he would not be able to make sense of the words. Um, so they must have been going somewhat slowly. And Philip crosses the cultural, maybe intimidation barrier of a wealthy uh, foreigner, and he begins to engage with him in conversation. And that's the next point, is the second thing about Philip is he engages in conversation. He initiates. He doesn't just show up. He opens up. That's where I usually struggle. I'm sure you sat beside someone on the bus or on a long flight somewhere, maybe in close proximity to a stranger in an airplane, and you've noticed that person reading, or aloof, or lonely, or maybe even they were interested in talking to you, and you feel that nudge to open up. Well, Philip opens up. He offers himself as a knowledgeable Jew, um, and is not intimidated by this man's obvious status, or put off by his foreignness. Do you understand what you are reading? He asks. He starts the conversation, and before you know it, Philip's one question leads to a number of questions on the part of the Ethiopian of, of the eunuch. First question was, the, the first question that he lost back at him was, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Friends, I believe the Lord does ordain and orchestrate conversations. This has been my experience. Um, uh, I, I, I'm bivocational, so I, I'm, I, you can find me in an airplane about six days, seven days a month, usually, with some other pilot or two pilots, and I'm engaging in conversation. We're stuck together in close proximity, and there is an amazing opportunity to talk. And often, when I open up, I'm there by no choice of mine, but when I do open up, it's wonderful. Sometimes, um, things, conversations do happen that are really exciting. And, and lead to uh, good things. But often, I have to be honest with myself, I just reason, like, I'm here for work. I'm tired. I need to focus. And there's just so many excuses. I'm like, I don't have time for that. But I think the truth is that this is often how the Lord works. He works when we open in conversation, when we engage with his word, when we are sensitive to his spirit, to bring people home through conversations. One essential ordinary component in this miracle of conversion that happens to the Ethiopian is Philip. It's you, it's me. That's the essential conversation, that's the essential component here. A person who is willing to open up, a befriender, a lover of Christ, somebody who knows God's word, Something about God, somebody who loves people and is willing to cross a barrier. You see, um, one quote I came up, uh, across recently that really encouraged me is that evangelism is joining a conversation that the Holy Spirit is already having with somebody else. And you just get to be there. And you get to by conversation, by engaging in conversation, you get to engage and continue that conversation that the Holy Spirit is happen, having. And so the Ethiopian uh, throws Philip a softball. He says, how can I understand unless someone guides me? Great, I wish I got that answer often. 
How can I understand unless someone guides me? And so Philip has the platform now. He has the opportunity to share the gospel. And that's the third thing I want to note about Philip is he understands and, and is able to explain the good news. I think we should know how to share the good news in simple words, words that are yours, but words that are true and words that you, you can confidently share with, with, with a conviction and compassion. And Philip knew the scriptures. Now, mind you, I will admit, thankfully, he's not reading a story from 1 Samuel or, you know, of Agag or, you know, Samuel hacking Agag or something like that. Thankfully, it's not like that. And he has to, you know, lop to Jesus from there. He, he's in Isaiah 53, so good. But um, he's, still, he's still willing and he's still knowledgeable enough about the Bible to be able to go there and to explain Christ. He is, like it says in 2 Timothy 3, a man who is equipped for every good work. He knows the scriptures. He knows they're profitable. And he knows how to get to Christ, doesn't he? He knows that Christ is the key that opens the door from the Old to the New Testament. He is the star of scripture. And so, as we're going to see here shortly, Philip is excited to get to Christ. And he tells him the good news about Jesus. Finally, Expect God to work as you explain the good news. I'll get to what he actually says here in a moment. But I want to encourage us. Expect God to work as you explain the good news. I can imagine as Philip begins to present the story of the good news and the conversation continues, that the Ethiopian is falling under the spell of Jesus Christ, who had come from God's heart into the world and lived and served and died and gave himself as a sacrifice for sins and rose again triumphantly and lives and reigns over all things one day to return. I imagine that somehow this message that you and I have heard maybe many times is grabbing this man and he is falling under the spell of Jesus Christ. That meant that Christ, as he is offered to, to him and to you and I in the, in the gospel, this good news to sinners like you and me, like our Ethiopian friend, the promises of cleansing from sin, of freedom from bondage, and the gift of the life-giving spirit as our friend, of belonging to God's family. Good news. This is good news. When I came to Canada, I was 16, and Christ had an appointment with me. Much like this, I walked into a church that was just a few minutes from my house and the priest was faithful enough to take interest in me as a 16-year-old boy and to share the gospel with me and invite me to his home. Pointed me to a local Christian bookstore. I barely spoke much English. I barely spoke any English. And he said, let's get you a Bible. And Jesus was getting a hold of me. God was using that time not only to teach me English, but to teach me about himself. Maybe you, have, maybe you have had an experience like that. Maybe that's your story too. And God had an appointment with you like that. Maybe this morning, someone here, God has an appointment with you. The point is that God's ways are not our ways. You see, this meeting that this man had with um, Philip, that was not an engineered meeting or the credit of some missional strategy or some human planning. This was the spirit moving 
and the angel of the Lord instructing Philip to be right there in that place at that time, and he was obedient, and a miracle of conversion happened. Amazing. Sometimes God uses extraordinary leadings to lead his people to certain places. If you read the history of saints, God's people sometimes through the centuries, especially uh, in the history, throughout the history of revivals, you find men and women being told by the Spirit, having that strong sense of conviction, of calling to go somewhere by faith. They don't fully understand. And amazing things come of it. But I think, ordinarily, you and I don't need that extraordinary, maybe dramatic call. Because the Spirit is often prompting us, isn't He? He is often trying to get our attention if we're careful and sensitive and prayerful. He's trying to get our attention to open up. You see, Philip was the final link in God's sovereign chain that brought this searching African to the end of his search for salvation and to experience the joy of Jesus Christ. You might be the final link in the chain like Philip that brings someone home. I haven't had that experience a lot. I'll be honest with you. Maybe a couple of times. But for the most part, I think many of us are also called to be different parts of that chain. Maybe you're at the beginning. You're just sowing that seed, putting a stone in someone's shoe. Or maybe it's somebody who's not fully home to Jesus Christ yet, and they're going through a hard time in your church, and you have the privilege of speaking Christ's comfort and strength and encouragement to them. And they come to experience God for the first time in a saving, amazing way because you were there. I imagine when we get to heaven, we're going to meet all kinds of people that helped bring us home along the journey. It'll be a great time. It will be a time of great excitement. The people who have shown us hospitality, the people who explain the Bible to us week in and week out, the people who've just been patient with us, the people who were with us when we were wayward and wandering, who cared and helped and taught and befriended. All of us, in a sense, are called to be like Philip. We're called to be missionaries. That's our ordinary calling as sent out disciples. Finally, the joyfulness of the gospel. And that's where we'll close. The joyfulness of the gospel. See, the gospel is great news of great joy. And that's where Luke, very briefly, in his typical way, just in very brief words, verse 39, he said, this man went home rejoicing. Packs a lot into these few short, short words. This is the same joy that we saw earlier in Acts 8, or we see earlier in Acts 8, that filled the city of Samaria. Joy, it said, earlier in Acts 8, filled the city of Samaria, flooded the hearts of countless men and women, and still does to this day with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Maybe you feel it this morning. It might be faint, but it's there. There's something in you of God's work and God's spirit, and you know it. I think this is where all of us need to go this morning if we're not feeling particularly excited about sharing the gospel. We need to go back to discovering that the gospel is good news for each of us. If you're finding yourself in a place where you're just not excited, I think that might be the Lord prompting you this morning to say, go back and get excited about the gospel. See that it is good news for you. 
And so that's what Philip does. He shares the gospel from Isaiah 53. He doesn't go to a different text. He shares it from Isaiah 53. I'll just read those uh, two lines very closely, uh, very uh, briefly for you. And then um, we'll talk a little bit about the gospel as we close. The passage of the scripture, it says there in verse 32, the passage of the scripture that, that he was reading was, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's talking about Jesus. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. It's fairly easy for you and me today to know that this points to Jesus. But at the time, even, even many of Philip's contemporaries may have wondered, is this the prophet he's talking about? Or is this some other figure? Who was Isaiah talking about 750 years before the crucifixion? When he was describing the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus. But I think that somehow the Ethiopian needed to hear this particular passage that morning or that day. He heard that at the heart of the message of the gospel is Christ rejected, humiliated, a victim of the greatest injustice in human history, a lamb led to the slaughter. He heard about the suffering servant. I can see Philip saying to him, don't you see my African friend? He did this for you. He was humiliated. He lived under the law. He was made unclean, poor, forsaken, crucified outside the gate, cut off from his people. All this for you. For you and for me. Don't you see, dear sir, that he took your place so that you can be welcomed in? Adopted and given a name better than sons and daughters? Better than having a family? He did this by taking your place. We call it substitutionary atonement. Taking our place. Taking the, the suffering that we deserved to suffer, to take. Emptied himself of his glory and suffered at his death. And things were to change. The Ethiopian responded. He accepted this news. <laughs> the first thing we hear after that is that he, it, after he's convinced and believed, believes is that he asks for baptism. Somehow in this conversation, baptism had come up, had come up and he asks to be baptized. He's like, there's water right there. Why can't I stop? Because he understood something about the meaning of baptism. He understood that that's a sign of beginning a journey of faith, of being the disi a disciple, of being in Christ's church as a disciple. So he says, why not now? Why not begin this journey now? And so the water, that sign of and seal of God's cleansing power, of his promise to engraft and enfold us into God's family, he experiences that. He experiences that baptism that day. I'm sure there was great rejoicing. I don't think the eunuch had any idea that by the end of that day, when he left Jerusalem, he would be filled with the joy of the Lord, filled with his spirit, and a disciple of Jesus Christ. Later on in Isaiah 56, maybe he read it later that day on the way home, it says this for eunuchs. Isaiah 56, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs 
who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the tidings that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This is our privilege, you and me. We are called to be part of God's family. We've been given a new body. In a way, our bodies are made temples of the living God. We can say, I am not my own. And we can sing the words of that song that I saw a few weeks ago. As I bear his image, may I not profane the holiness I hold in this earthly frame. I am not my own. I am not my own. As I close, I just want to encourage you. This morning, if this is the first time you hear this message, or maybe you've heard it many times before, what will you do with Jesus Christ? Will you come to him? Will you come to him this morning and have a conversation with somebody? Maybe there's a Philip in this room who really wants to talk to you this morning. Maybe you're that Philip. Take the opportunity and say hello to somebody and go past the small talk. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign and gracious and you work this miracle of grace, of conversion, and you are able to do this in our time, in our place. And we pray that even this morning, you would move our hearts to become Philip's and to even bring converted sinners home. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.